so hello everybody. Um, tonight I'm just going to talk. Um, I'm not going to do a, um, a highly structured um, conversation anyways. I thought it was best to talk a little bit about myself uh, in terms of curation and then talk about some elements of curation that I find um, interesting. And with that in mind, knowing that I was told I would have no PowerPoint or any exhibits around me, I did bring a box of tricks with me. So as the evening progresses, I do have a whole lot of stuff from exhibitions I've worked on and things I've seen. So I thought maybe that was a good way to start looking at uh, curatorial practice, to look at the role of the curator, to also learn about um, what a curator does. I've been very fortunate in my life because I've been a curator of two major fashion collections. I was a curator at the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra, uh, where I was fortunate to be a collection curator. Now, collection curators have the task of acquiring. Now, everyone always gets very excited about acquisitions, but actually acquiring is actually very hard. You have to convince trustees, because every gallery has a group of very serious people that look after it, that perhaps fashion is something that a National Gallery should have. But I won't dwell on that for the moment. We might return to that later. Um, I then became a senior curator at the National Gallery of Victoria. I then did a PhD at RMIT and I became um, a looser type of curator because I no longer had to worry about uh, institution and the rules. So I became um, a nomadic curator um, I did a series of shows called Nomadic Archive, which were just things I moved around. Um, I still have very strange nomadic tendencies and I will show you the things I collect and what I do because now I don't care about the rules. Um, I'm happy to talk about them. I'm happy to respect institutions. And I will talk about the Jean-Paul Gaultier exhibition later because that was one of the reasons why I used the title From Designer Wear to Dust and I'll refer to that later. But when I did my PhD, I had to address all my demons about what it is I do, why do I do it, and perhaps I could do it differently. So in the course of trying to describe to people why putting together a collection of clothes actually does something in a museum, I refer to our de dear friend Lee Tullock. Now, some of you would be familiar with the work of Lee Tullock. Uh, she's now a, a well-known travel writer. Some of you might know her from her heydays in fashion as uh, editor of Harper's, uh, also influential in um, FDC, a uh, whole range of things, and very much um, a very stylish, fashion-serious person. But often the best way to critique an area is through humour. Now, and that's often very difficult to be humorous. Now, one of my favourite books, and I bore people with this book all the time, is a book called Fabulous Nobodies. Now, if you've never read this book, I would insist that you read this book. Now, I have to check the name of the major character because I always get it wrong. But the woman in this, the main character, is Reality Nirvana Tuttle. And she was born in a very important fashion year, 1968. And we all know the influence of Yves Saint Laurent in that seminal year in 1968. So Fabulous Nobodies is about how fashion does empower people and style. Now, when I actually was the curator of a retrospective of Balenciaga here at the National Gallery of Victoria, 
Lee Tulloch spent a lot of time with me because she's very fascinated with Balenciaga as well because in this book we have a very interesting description about the power of a collection of clothes. So tonight, rather than just boring you with my dialogue, I'm going to read from Fabulous Nobodies. Now, this is a fairly riveting experience I'm going to share with you, and hopefully you will be as enamoured by this description as I am. But what it is, is here we have um, our dear friend, again, checking her name, which I've lost already, because um, I always get her name, Reality, with Freddie. I always remember Freddie because he does all the talking. So you can imagine Reality and Freddie going into the Fashion Institute in New York, which is where all the well-known designers want to have their garments on display. Now, this exhibition is possibly not true. It's probably based on an exhibition that was held at the Metropolitan, but who cares? It's fiction. But what happens when we see a group of clothing? What happens when we see a designer that we know who is like uh, you know, our ultimate? This is the designer we want to aspire to become. So excuse me as I try and be Freddie and read the experience of walking into the Balenciaga exhibition, true or fiction, at the Fashion Institute. Cristobal Balenciaga Freddy sighs as we're standing in front of a spotlit coat in the exhibition room at the Fashion Institute. Have you ever seen anything so divine, he asks, pressing his hands under his chin as if he were, about, as if he were going to get down on his knees and pray. I must admit I haven't. We've made up. Freddy has apologised to me for going to less is more. He explained it was so riveting, awfully, he couldn't resist. I've told him that I've forgiven him. He's told me he's forgiven me for throwing Jackie O down the stairs, even though I have to keep on pointing out I didn't throw her. This is a fictitious character, little toy they had. So they're going through a bit of a tiff. So they've come to this exhibition to sort of make up. Consequently, his plan is to keep me busy, because if I weren't so busy, I'd have nothing to do. I read one of the catalogue cards out loud to Freddie. Evening coat. Chul covered with bright green ostrich feathers by Judith Barbier, winter 1964, worn by the Countess de Martini. Oh, God, groans Freddie in ecstasy. And look at this, I say, pointing to the display next to it, evening coat, white organza with applied flowers made of pink and white parachute silk, summer 1964, lent by Herbert de Givenchy, Paris. Oh, God, moans Freddie. It's beyond. How do you think I'd look in this, I asked, contemplating a mannequin swathed in bubble dress, violet nylon tulle and organdy applique, winter 1961. Do you like the colour? I love the colour, he says. I'm devoted to violet. And turns to another mannequin, one that is wearing evening gown black silk crepe with a shoe cape, winter 1967. There are about two dozen mannequins on platforms under lights in the room. There are wedding gowns in silk fail, ivory satin, shantung, zibeline. There are cocktail dresses in white chapeau lace with black satin bows, full-length frocks in velvet faveur lace on silk-covered horsehair ground. There's a jacket in variegated brown coupe de velour in broken stripes on a black silk ground and an ivory satin duchess evening gown with rhinestone shoulder straps. There's a long trailing frock in black silk velvet with a divine foliate cutwork pattern and a baby doll in heavy black silk with embroidered dots. 
I think heaven looks like this, whispers Freddy. We stroll among the frocks. There are about five other people in the room, some of them taking notes, the others floating around as if they were mesmerised. It is so quiet you could hear a hem coming down until two girls in tacky, bleach-splotched jeans come in and start giggling at one of the exhibits, an unbelievably adorable pink-shot silk taffeta evening frock with a big bustle at the back. Shh! Snaps Freddy. You wouldn't giggle in church, would you? The girls make faces at him and move on. I wander into the room next door and Freddy catches up with me a few minutes later. We're both staring at a purple mohair coat. Look at that, he whispers, pointing to the way the sleeve is pleated. Isn't that one of the most beautiful things you have ever seen? The man was a genius. He takes something from nature like a petal, and what does he do? He improves upon it. He's immortal. So there you go in terms of Balenciaga, which of course is often known, Balenciaga is often known as the master in terms of fashion. One thing that often happens with a fashion exhibition is this, this, um, this hierarchy. Suddenly a designer becomes this sort of god um, and often we lose track of what it is. Although in that description you can see that there is a definite sense of fashion. I mean, Lee knows her fashion, the detail, you know, all the various elements um, that happen um, in an exhibition. But when I looked at that, I thought I'd pull out some of my old labels. Um, so having worked on a few of these large exhibitions, um, Gianni Versace. This was an exhibition that I did at the National Grove Victoria that we had um, at Russell Street. You, we'll pass these around. You can hand... Oh, I'll talk to them first and pass them around. Um, we did this exhibition um, when the gallery moved to Russell Street while um, NGV was being refurbished. Um, and this was working with uh, the Versace team, which was very scary. Um, I told my husband, if I don't come home at night, I might be on the bottom of the river with cement shoes, um, just because they set up a dynamic which didn't leave a lot of dialogue. They kept saying to me, Gianni would have liked to have seen it like this. I had to remind them that Gianni was dead. <laughs> uh, so it all got a bit scary at some stage. But working on these very large collections is very, very challenging. Um, so with the Gianni Versace exhibition, which came from the archive in Milan, uh, very much invested in the family. Um, so what they wanted to show was an image of Versace that was true to the brand now. And this is a real problem when you start working with design houses and you can talk to any curator across the world. They all want to work with these big fashion design conglomerates, but it is the most difficult thing you'll ever do. So the reason why I'm showing you the coloured labels, this is why I nearly ended up in the bottom of the river with the cement shoes, because we had the Gianni Versace stylists flew out from Milan and showed us the colours for the season, which were pale pink, beige, and, and a sort of a, another sort of tawny brown, and said it would be good if the exhibition were in this palette. And I said, why? Um, so my rationale behind the colour, and again, we use these very vibrant hot pink and green and yellow walls, was to make it pulse. So when you came in, it was like Hollywood and you really got hit by what Versace is all about. Um, so it was to do an atmosphere. So this is something that people often underrate in curatorship. 
It's not just, oh, yeah, I like blue, I like pink. What, what does the colour actually do for that experience? So people would come in, and even though it's a very cliché word to use and have that sort of wow type factor, it did do it because most people went cross-eyed because it was so bright. It was like, whoa. But huge arguments in terms of what does that colour do, da-da-da, and so on. But the colour actually brought out the detail. So one thing that Versace... Um, is, is, is the most interesting part of his work is to do with the leather, the leather jackets from the 70s, uh, the beautiful coats that were designed in the uh, 70s and 80s, not the Hollywood-style, very iconic garments that, that are part of popular culture. So those colours actually brought out all those details. And because we had garments represented by uh, stars like Madonna, I put Madonna's dresses beside the coats so everyone looked at the coats, even though they're only really tr looking at Madonna's work, but it meant they could see the tailored coats. So as a curator, you can't control where people go or how they react, but you, you do try and think of things to draw out. Um, so what, what, what do you want to say about Versace? What is there to say about someone like Versace? So going back into Italian traditions, the way things are made, this incredible um, MTV lifestyle that very much Gianni Versace was very attuned to in terms of garments that look good on television in an MTV music spot. So all the types of effects and materials. So when you put it in a museum, you have to be very careful that you lose that. And doesn't matter how much auxiliary material. I get very worried when people put so much, all the movies, all the, all the photos, everything. Because to have that luxury of the proximity of a garment, you don't want to lose that. You want to give people that experience. So you have to make sure they don't get lazy and just go and look at the photo. You want them to look at the garment. Anyway, I'll pass these around because these were revolutionary in terms of... Um, Um, and, and also in terms of legibility, you know, colour, no one ever be able to read it, da-da-da. Because, again, you know, if you go to a museum, you know, you, you do want to share information. I mean, the worst thing about curators, and I get up here and I'll chat and everyone go, oh, she knows so much. But the curator has to share. So the thing about being a curator is how do you share the knowledge? Sure, I get to see inside things, I get to do things that other people can't do. So what is it that you do to activate ways, curiosity, ways of looking, interesting juxtapositions of things, so that people actually make their own discoveries? The thing about labels, I never read labels when I go to museums. I make up my own. So that's just how I've always been. So I know lots of people that do that because visually I just want that experience. So you have to think about what you do that if they don't look at the label, there's a way they can see. Uh, labels are fine, as again, there'll be people that always want to have that basic knowledge, and that's why labels are quite basic. It just says what it is, what it's made of, and where it's from. Um, and then you go into other forms of information that become much, much more complex. Now, I found some other labels, which I started to discolour because they were just the ones... Um, on the board. But when I actually started at the NGV, um, again, I was quite excited to find that there was uh, Vivian Westwood in the collection with a pair of these very famous shoes for the label for when it was sex. Now, I think at that stage, these were the ones that were worn at the inflation nightclub by the girls dressed up in Jenny Bannister. 
and a pair ended up at the NGV. So it's sort of interesting where you where you find these things. But the NGV in those days was quite conservative, um, and and most institutions are. So you know labels like this, you know, you had to put the stamp on because it was funny, um, you know, especially for sex. So you know, people will read the label. It's not me saying especially for sex. It's on it's on the actual pair of shoes. So people, it's information we're sharing because you can't look in the shoe, um, and so on. So you can have a look at that one. So. Then again, when I started at the NGV, and I was very keen to bring in some contemporary uh, international, and looking at a way that we could bring in um, designers as they were hot, you know, not wait till. So I just went to the back of the Face magazine, looked up Alexander McQueen's address, sent off a note, and voila. We got the boot shoes. We got about three different garments that any museum in the world would kill for now from 1996. So that was just sending off the note. Got, got a phone call, not from Alexander McQueen, but the right-hand person in the office who was chuffed. Australia. Oh, how exciting. And then they threw in an extra garment because they were so chuffed. Um, we got the bumpsters when everyone was saying, bumpsters, what are they? We Again, I just asked them for a pair of bumpsters. So, um, but again, working with designers when they're not the grand Alexander McQueen um, is something that happens a lot in contemporary art, um, but can be quite tricky in curation of fashion. You know, why would you choose them? Isn't that risky? Well, it's the same in contemporary art. It's exactly the same thing. But if you think about the career of a designer, when is the time they need support from an institution? It's when they're an emerging designer. So the idea that when Alexander McQueen wasn't going around in the limo, um, that in fact the people from Australia just rang up and, oh my God, yes, that would be a good thing, that that actually became a way that you can actually, um, you know, in terms of build up people in terms of their careers. It also means they get their work exposed in different ways. So galleries have, have a major role in advocacy for the areas that they represent. So for fashion to be in an institution, it doesn't, it doesn't stifle it. It gives, it, um, it gives us a, a, larger, a larger community base. So people become familiar with a name like an Alexander McQueen as they would with, dare I say, a Renoir or whatever. It's in the same type of space. But again, there are times when you just, again, use your face magazine, look up the phone number and, then, and, the, and just send off the note. So that was the note to Alexander McQueen. Um, I did a similar thing when I was in... Um, when I was in Canberra and I'd started a long relationship with Stephen Jones, the milliner, again, very early in his career, uh, sent him a note. Um, he did beautiful illustrations to go with all the hats because he was so chuffed that they were coming to Australia um, and just threw them in as a bonus. So it's just interesting in terms of often we look at these very grand overseas collections, but actually in Australia we have some remarkable, remarkable holdings. Um, and I think often, um, because of where we are, we're much more open about some of the ways we collect and how we collect. And certainly all the designers I've ever spoken to have been so excited about being represented in Australia. So I've never had any, you know, oh, Australia. No, wow, Australia. So, and usually stuff gets thrown in. 
Um, so the other thing I wanted to, to mention um, before I, I bore you with some other tales of things I've found through my curatorial work um, is the exhibition we did last year because I think also being an M Pavilion, um, I'm fortunate in terms of now that I work at RMIT, that we had an opportunity to work with, again, Naomi Milgram Foundation and Robert Buckingham, who's here, and bring out the Walter van Berendonck Dream the World Awake exhibition. Now, the reason why I bring this up, because it, in some ways it was a very different type of curatorial experience, because it wasn't an exhibition that came into the large museum, like an NGV or a National Gallery of Australia. In fact, it came into um, an art gallery facility in a university which is a very, very different environment. What it meant that, again, it was, again, through, through the incredible sp sponsorship of the foundation, that, that could be a free exhibition and we could embed it in the lives of our students. So what we wanted to do was to break down the barriers of, again, like the Balenciaga, uh, oh, my God, wow, you know, how do you engage with a designer who you respect, a designer's work who you truly want to know more about. And I can tell you, we've always had a bit of a cult following at RMIT for Walter van Berendong. So a lot of our students have always been very fascinated with his work and also many of the other Belgian designers. So we actually got the students to come up with their own way of dealing with how they would dress up to meet Walter van Berendong. So this is where new design could meet Walter's design. So rather than going along and looking at all his work and going, great, wow, blah, blah. They could, he could look at their work and go, oh, that's, you know, so they could have a conversation about design rather than just going through the motions of spectatorship. So with that in mind, they did their own poster, which you can see here, dress up to meet Walter, we can pass this around. It was hysterical. They got so excited. Um, and then they did a bit of a parade down the streets. We had four different tribes converging on the design hub. We didn't invite anyone else. It was for the students and Walter. So Walter got to see all these people with their funny outfits um, and some amazing outfits. And then some people just put on their best dress. Um, and that was also charming as well. But it was just hysterical when everyone came together. And we have photos of the exhibition and all these people dressed up that is so amazing because that's the thing you can't control as a curator, what people wear when they come to the exhibition or what they might do. So the pictures of that are quite extraordinary. And when you go through documentation of exhibitions, um, it's quite sad when they just show you the exhibition with just the show in it. Because when you design an exhibition, you design it for people to be in it. So the most interesting photos are when you see people in the spaces. Now, at the gallery, one of the other, and we can pass this around. Talking about people in spaces. One of the other interesting garments that came into the gallery when I was there was the um, Lee Bowery Metropolitan outfit. And this is one Robert knows about because he worked on a Lee Bowery uh, exhibition that was at RMIT Gallery. Um, and working closely with Nicola Bowery, who was the partner of uh, Lee Bowery. So the NGV became the first institution in the world to purchase Lee Bowery for its collection. So that in its, again, looking at Australia and the world. Um, but the garment that came in was the metropolitan garment that Lee Bowery wore to the opening of the Lucian Freud exhibition at the Metropolitan. 
And there were all the press, you know, with the Lucian Freud there and all the paintings, and many of them were, of course, Lee Bowery naked um, or his partner naked. But who were they taking photographs of? Lee Bowery wearing this, this men's floral ball gown with the Kaiser helmet and a full, full, full floral um, facial mask, um, you know, boys' pockets, square-chested ball gown and, of course, you know... Um, I think the armpits are cut out as well. So, again, very much a boy's ball game, but that was the attention. Absolutely extraordinary. And do you think that the trustees of the Metropolitan would purchase that garment for their collection, even though they've got the photos of everyone staring at Lee Bowery in this incredible spectacle? No. The irony is if they ever want to recreate that moment, they'll need to borrow that from the National Gallery of Victoria. So I do think that's very interesting in terms of just those extraordinary... Uh, and it was an extraordinary uh, fashion moment. And if I put my RMIT hat on, I do use Lee Bowery as an alumni of RMIT. He left in second year, and I don't use this as an example for other students, but he did get through first year and his teachers still speak glowingly about shy Lee. <laughs> and then he went off to London and the rest is, you know, is history. But... Um, I do think it's interesting in terms of looking at um, moments when, again, the idea that there are rich stories, narratives, clothing narratives, fashion narratives, and something like having a Lee Bowery exhibition in Australia, that Bowery is born in sunshine. He's, you know, he's as Australian in terms of a very interesting uh, fashion story. Um, and again, going back to Balenciaga, uh, Bowery used to, to nick the fashion history books when he was in London. So he had beside his bed, you know, a volume on Balenciaga, uh, Christian Dior. So he did study the masters. So that Vaughan probably was heavily influenced by either Christian Dior or Balenciaga. So in terms of looking at influence of designers, I think it's, it's interesting to be quite broad about the sorts of things that should be represented. But for me, that was an incredible fashion moment and for Bowery to end up in an institution. And people have written about this since in terms of the gallery having Bowery uh, formally recognised. Um, but it was sad, as I say, where it should have gone, the Metropolitan should have, would have been very interesting for it to have ended up in New York in that collection. So we can pass this around for those of you who are not... Then I'm going to talk briefly about Gaultier because I can see I can see the uh, sign across there before I talk about more about dust. Um, but what I wanted to mention and why I called this um, this talk from designer wear to dust. Um, it's interesting now that we do have a Jean-Paul Gaultier exhibition here in Melbourne, and I think it's it's incredible. Like people have hung out for decades and decades and decades for the Gaultier exhibition. But it's interesting because a lot of designers do have real issues with um, their work being represented in a museum. You know, what happens when your work is suddenly... And I know this with the designers I work with now. You know, my work becomes something else. And that can be, that can be quite troubling. Now, Gaultier, for decades, was very, very outspoken about... Only, you know, the, 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 the museum really only represented dead designers... But about 10 years ago, he did the most incredible exhibition in Paris called Pan Couture, which is sort of high fashion bread, if we want to do a very literal French translation. Anyone who's French here will just go, oh, my God, don't say like, like that. Um, 
But what Gaultier did was quite extraordinary because um, part of the exhibition was in response to looking at the craft of bread making and the craft of fashion and haute couture. So at the time in Paris, um, the bread makers were, were felt quite threatened by the influx of bread franchises that were opening in Paris. And people were worried that the art of, of making bread in Paris would disappear. And you just have, you know, your, your brumbies or whatever, you know, dare I say, um, propping up everywhere. So, so Galtier had this idea that, again, like, like Karl Lagerfeld had done with um, couture crafts, to really make people aware of those very specialised techniques that go into making and crafting something. So he had all his most famous garments kneaded and baked in bread. So the famous iconic Madonna dress with the conical bra had sort of brioche cups. Um, everything was made in bread. Um, and also at the Cardia Foundation, they had, they had the bakers working in the basement. So when you came in, you smelt the bread. Um, and the beauty of it was that, and this was something Gaultier spoke about, that at the end of it all, there'd be nothing left to archive because it would all turn to crumbs. So they could just literally sweep it away. But the actual, again, looking at the power of curatorship and the sorts of, um, the sorts of um, ideas and processes that you can expose to people with something as simple as that or as crazy as that. My God, thank, I'm so pleased we have someone like the Cartier Foundation that went, yeah, make the garments in bread. Yeah, bring in the bakers. Yeah, we'll have them. You know, it's such a, a wonderful thing that someone supported. But what it did was really make people think about those very specialised skills. Haute couture represents very, very specialised skills. Um, and, and, you know, it fades and it grows, but a lot of those crafts still exist. Um, often we, we, we lose sight of the bespoke. Um, it bubbles up and then disappears again. And something as fundamental as bread, and when we think of iconically in Paris, the importance of French bread, it was really quite um, a politicised statement. So here we have the romance of the... The, the bread and the beautiful garments you'll recognise, but it was highly political. So often I think in terms of the messages that designers put across or the choices that they make can actually disappear. Sometimes exhibitions that are too large can actually dilute a designer. Where people think it will actually heighten an impact, it can dilute it because you see too much of the same thing over and over again. Even though designers work in multiples, it can actually dilute that right down. So I was interested, again, to go to see Gaultier in its entirety. And I think the interesting thing about seeing Gaultier now is, of course, you've got the haute couture Gaultier that people would just gasp and go, oh. I mean, everyone gasped at haute couture. You can put any designer because it's beautiful and all those hours and people labour with it. But the interesting stuff in that exhibition where people do need to spend time are when we're dealing with, you know, the naughty boy of fashion, when all the journalists just criticised his work all the time, were insulted by the parades, people weren't wearing it, you know, the skirt suit, you know, Sarah Moa writes about it all the time, only 3,000 were ever made. You know, when you read about this, and even now, where are all the skirt suits? You know, you, so to me, you have to be very careful that you don't lose 
the very powerful messages. And, you know, you can say that things are, you know, influenced by culture or this, but, but what? What is it? What is it really doing here? You know, what is the impact of that? And often, uh, often the most potent things a designer does are the failures and they, and they don't actually get taken up and there's a reason for that. So I think it's interesting, you know, if people gravitate towards something that Nicole Kidman wore, when in fact it's probably more interesting to look at the works that we're not so familiar with. Why weren't they taken up? The risk that Gaultier took and also financially put himself at risk again and again and again. You read into most designers from, you know, McQueen, Hussein Shalayan, Jean-Paul Gaultier, it's a rocky road. Fashion, as a lot of you here know, is a hard, hard business, and it is a business. But I think it's interesting when you read uh, the critics of the time, what they said, what they loved, what they hated, what they loathed. Um, French criticism is, is the best because, again, it looks very, very deeply into fashion in the moments. But, you know, the English press is notorious, wiped out Galliano right in the early days, wiped out. So it's interesting to put it in that context, the bravery of some of the designs that Gaultier was doing. Um, and, again, the personalities, even Madonna in the early days, taking up some of those looks. Now, unfortunately, it's too familiar. We go in there and you've got to really, you've really got to draw yourself back and really put yourself back in that moment. So for me, I think it's wonderful because people just go in and go, I love Gaultier, I love Gaultier, a bit like <laughs> Freddie with Balenciaga. But my caution here is it, it does need to be taken in in terms of what fashion really does. And that's something that um, curators continually have to work at. How do you do that without labouring it? You don't want to have the big star on this one and say, oh, have a bit of, better have a look at this one. This was the big flop. That you, you need to actually work very carefully on... Uh, those dialogues of how you actually build up those sorts of conversations. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, because when I did my PhD, and again, I, I, could look at, I could look at my world differently. I didn't have to worry about trustees. I didn't have to worry about a five-year exhibition plan. Uh, I didn't have a budget, which was interesting. Um, so <laughs> it's a look at life differently. Um, so all my, all my curatorial life, and I can say this because my dear friend Lizzie isn't here tonight and she'll expect me to say it, my dear friend from the National Trust, is I spent most of my life skirting working with the National Trust. I had opportunities when trust collections were offered to the gallery. We said, no, 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 we don't, we're not interested in those historical costumes, da, 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 and so on. And then here in my PhD, I suddenly decided, what am I going to do that I've never really done? I'm going to face my fears. I'm going to face historical costume. Really, really old, old, old stuff. Now, interesting enough, the first exhibition I saw was at the National Gallery of Victoria when I was a very small girl, when my mother took me to the Lady of Fashion, Rowena's, Rowena Clark's exhibition, uh, which was when the Schofield Collection was given to the National Gallery of Victoria. And I was terrified by these very scary-looking mannequins. <laughs> I still am. And I have a real thing about those mannequins made out of chicken wire and sort of covered. When I became a curator at the NGV, I threw them all out. Um, just because, and they probably were the ones from the next exhibition, just because I thought, my God, the shapes, everything, it's so wrong. Um, and they do create quite an uncanny, which I quite like now, quite an uncanny um, atmosphere. Um, so I... Interesting enough, I did have that experience. And whether that haunted me right up until this moment when I suddenly just decided I had to face my demons in my PhD. So I said to Lizzie, 
could I do an exhibition with the National Trust? And they said, yes, we'd love you. Come in and do it. So in I came. And, of course, they wanted me to do something like wedding gowns, which is ironic because of the recent wedding gown. Um, and I just said, just let me have a look in storage. I said, look, I'd like to do fancy dress. I thought maybe that would be fun, something a bit different. Um, so I went in there and I started to open the boxes and everything was falling apart. And I looked at it. What used to happen? People used to offer their garments to the National Grove of Victoria and we'd say, mm, I'm sorry, the condition's not very good. Why don't you offer it to the National Trust? So here they all were before my very eyes. I'm going, oh, I remember that. Oh, there it is. So anyway, I started to go through and the Trust volunteers, who are lovely and my, quite close friends with me now, said, Robin, can we do an exhibition as a fundraiser and raise lots of money to conserve the National Trust collection? And I'm going, oh, I think I've heard this before. I went, mm, maybe, maybe, maybe. And anyway, I'm sort of going through all of this. And then I suddenly said to Lizzie, um, I think I want to curate them as they are. Let's forget about conservation. Let's see. In fact, can you ask the volunteers to find me all the things that are the most deteriorated? So, of course, the volunteers thought I was a complete lunatic because usually you get asked to find best conditions, strongest garments that can sustain the rigours of exhibition practice. And they just rolled their eyes and thought, but look, they came out with pieces of, you know, a ribbon walled by Napoleon. We had fragments from Queen Victoria's something. Um, we had garments that were, you know, um, growing. Uh, we had things that were in tatters, um, which is when the silk reaches the point of collapse. And that's one of my favourite moment now, in tatters. So we went through all of this. And then I thought, so that's all very fine for me to go a romantic about the poetics of, you know, things breaking down. But what is it actually telling us here? And in fact, what we were looking at was the history of wear, how people wear clothes. So when we go to museums and we th see things in pristine condition, um, things that are made to look as new, we actually forget the actual process of wear how things over time will change colour, the wear out an elbow, uh, dare I say, women sweated in 19th century, you know, ball gowns, you know, often collections will cut out the sweat pads so you never see these very ugly monsters that actually dwelled inside the gown. You know, there are lots of things that you, you just don't see. So for me, the potency of that collection came in the idea of wear. How do we actually curate wear? So this became an interesting conversation with the National Trust. And when we, we did a small exhibition called Noble Rot, which was opened by Bill Henson, which was wonderful. Um, and, in, and in the Noble Rot uh, catalogue, which is a very tiny catalogue, because again, no budget, no nothing, uh, we had to, had to make the statement that the National Trust cares for its collection, that we, you know, that they are, because again, when you give something to, to an institution, the idea is that they'll look up after it, they'll make it look new again or they'll give it all this tender loving care. <coughs> so the idea that we would just have stuff literally falling apart um, sort of went against all the principles of conservation, museum presentation and so on. So we put a bit of a disclaimer in there. But out of that exhibition, there was a woman at Deakin who wrote a novel about one of the bodices she saw on the dining room table. Uh, all these creative works, it's quite amazing. I still get people coming to me. It's been one of the chapters I wrote, it was published in the Textile Reader, got published in the Design Journal and so on. This idea of looking at how, how things wear became a very, a very potent dialogue. I've also managed to convince the trust 
that there is notoriety in a collection that shows wear and that to, not to waste their time trying to, to, to try and raise mythical dollars to make everything look new. That in fact, it's one of the few collections in Australia that actually shows how people wore clothes. There are some incredible garments there from well-known designers to garments that worn on the goldfields. So you actually get a very true history of fashion, who wore it, how it was worn, and that's a very, very rare thing. So when, when I was at the gallery, there were moments there when we'd see these incredibly worn garments that people just loved, like Lady Grounds, Roy Grounds' um, wife. She had a cream Balenciaga coat that she literally wore all the time, all the time. I mean, wouldn't you have had a Balenciaga coat from the 1960s? So when it came to the gallery, it was incredibly worn, and the only reason it probably made, made it into the collection was because it was lady grounds but that's very important because it actually shows the notoriety you don't want just the curiosities ending up in museums or the designer who says oh you know this is my grand finale costume it should be in a museum because that's only one side so you have to make sure that you get the garments that actually are out there you know and and the bumpster did get notoriety in the end so that was interesting uh, and did get worn um so I think this is where museums have to be very careful in collection practices. And that was one thing I learnt when I went to, to this discovery with the um, National Trust, was to, to really think about that notoriety of a garment through the wear of it rather than through a pristine condition. And that's a very different way of looking at things. So then when I did, and I'll just bore you with a few more tiny things, things like sweat, I became obsessed with sweat patterns that you get in the inside of garments. You can have a look at it later. I became obsessed with darning. I became... Because, again, you know, that's something that people don't talk a lot about, darning. Um, insides of lining, like little foxes inside the lining. So I just took heaps of... I'll pass these around later. Um, inscriptions. People write silly things and attach them to things that often don't mean anything. So the trust would just have someone just make something up and say, 150 years old, and just whack it on the garments. So, so, but when did they put 150 years old on it? Who said that? So I got obsessed with all these little captions that people... Because, again, these charming volunteers would come in and they'd just write captions for things. Um, and no one would be quite sure whether that was a true caption or, you know, was that a research caption or whatever. So I spent a lot of time there. And, again, I've got boxes and boxes of things. But I did then like the idea that people put things in boxes. So what I do now when I go to... Um, when I go to um, Fates and whatever, I buy a box that looks like it's just a normal box and then I like what people put in it. So you can... So I have boxes of these at home. People put their, their beads, their pins, you know. It's just... It's this thing that happens in the area where people like the idea. This one's quite pathetic. It's just... Again, it's not mine. It's just someone's bit of thread and, a, and they gave it away and there it is. Um... But it's interesting in terms of just those accoutrements. So in terms of when you have a wardrobe, you always need, you know, the beads and a few buttons here and a needle and a pin. And, a, and again, um, with my friend Lizzie, um, we've been working on this idea of a pin exhibition um, because, again, in terms of the most early technology is a pin in terms of how cloth has come together. And we still use pins. So I have quite an interesting collection of 16th... 15th, 16th and 17th century pins. And the idea is to have this little micro, little tiny exhibition <laughs> that travels the world. 
very cheap to do, <laughs> with little tiny showcases. And you all come and go, whoa, with really big labels. <laughs> but in terms of the number of um, people it takes to make a pin, uh, it was very, very challenging. Uh, so pins are used for economic theory, all sorts of things. So the pin actually has an incredible, incredible history, um, including all sorts of cartoon characters and all sorts of things. So I used to bore students at RMIT with my pin lecture, um, which was very popular, but it still is my desire before I die to have my pin <laughs> exhibition. So if I have one, I'll let everyone know. Um, that's probably enough for me rambling. So I'm happy to answer any questions. I hope that's given you a little sense of, of my practice, which has gone through uh, museums, through um, my PhD, facing my demons, and now just these odd things that I find myself attracted to doing. So I'm happy to answer any questions. No, that's good. They said, oh, um, well, we'll take um, Pamela to see the Gokia show. And, uh, and I said, oh, well, probably Pamela's seen the show, so she won't take an awfully long time. She's probably interested in seeing other things. And uh, they said, oh, oh, all right, we'll only be an hour and a half. And I said, ah, no, I think she's seen the show. I think 10 minutes would probably be enough. And so I said to Pamela afterwards, oh, you know, is that okay? And she said, oh, yes, that's excellent. That will be quite enough. She said, I haven't really seen the show, though. Um, <laughs> but, um, after she'd seen the show, I said, oh, um, what did you think? And she said, well, Robert, it was very nice. Um, there were an awful lot of clothes, but not a lot of important clothes. Because, of course, it does have to go to 10, X10 venues. So the question is, how long, I mean, the point she was making, I suppose, is that, that no one would lend, she would consider, no one would, end, would lend something that was in a museum for a show that was going to so many places, perhaps being a little bit bitchy, but is there a, a limit on how often a, a garment can be shown? Well, there is, but th there's been a lot of debates. Um, um, I went to a conference in Paris a few years ago where Florence Muller was talking about um, how we might never see big retrospectives ever again because of what it does to them. Um, the Yves Saint Laurent exhibition that toured Russia, China, Australia in the 80s and early 90s, you know, killed killed the garments. But then, you know, so, so what are the collections for? So I think you have to toss up and, you know, f for a lot of people it is making sure they get out there. So, you know, why not, you know, if, the, if, if Gaultier, coming from Gaultier's collection, if he's prepared to let his archive out and give people the chance to see garments that they would never have an opportunity to see. I mean, I have seen people of all different ages go, oh, my God, it's, it's a Gaultier, regardless of whether it's the really good one or the famous one, or for them it's just it's Gaultier. You know, I might never get a chance to see a Gaultier. So I think we have to be careful we're not mean. Museums, though, in their own collections will have very high standards. So, again, you have a limited life 
in terms of exposure with lux levels and whatever. I didn't have that problem with the National Trust because the, the, the garments were already destroyed. So we didn't have to worry about that. They'd already reached the point of no return. Um, but I think there are some issues for museums to think about, you know, how much exposure. And then what are the other ways that we show garments? And I think there's more we can do um, in digital platforms in terms of, sure, we're not seeing the garment up close, but we can go in into the internal structures of garments. We can see detail. There's some incredible websites that give you, you know, like a... a a voyeuristic view of something that you'd only know if you were the wearer. And I think I think there's there's more that people can do with that. But I do think I was very surprised, but again, this is remember the convert, Jean-Paul Gaultier, who said he would never see his work in a museum. I think he's just said, Yay, museums are great. Let's just do all of them. Because everyone has courted Jean-Paul Gaultier for decades. Everyone. Absolutely everyone. So the coup was to get Gaultier and they got him. And why wouldn't you keep touring? So I think that's Gaultier. But things like Yves Saint Laurent, with that big Yves Saint Laurent show that went absolutely everywhere, uh, that was a propaganda show for Yves Saint Laurent Inc. You know, it was, it was, that was an enterprise. It was about getting Yves Saint Laurent as a global brand. And that's where a lot of the criticisms have come in the past with some of those large shows, because that wasn't toured by a museum. It was toured by Yves Saint Laurent. And this one has got the contents is mainly from Jean-Paul Gaultier. And that makes the difference. If it's the National Grove Victoria's collection or any other institute, like the Parisian collection, they're not going to let their garments go out for long periods of time. Because unfortunately for a garment, it will fade, you know, the effects of light are accumulative um, and, the and, and, and the actual fibres become quite brittle. But then you could say, so why have them? So I, I, th I, think there's, I think you have to make the choice. And if you make the choice, like if you want to kill the Yves Saint Laurent garments, which is what, they have no life left in them, that's fine. Because a lot of people saw them. And the same with this. A lot of people have seen Jean-Paul Gaultier. A lot of kids have seen Gaultier that they never, ever dreamed they would see. So I, I think it's, it's, you know, you don't want to be too mean. Um, and with clothing, you know, there are multiples of it. I mean, I want to see the exhibitions where they line up, you know, 20 of the same thing. I mean, we're quite boring how we do the singularity, that in fact, that's the one thing fashion does. And even with couture, you can get the five people that own that gown, you know, put them all together. Or you can get the Gaultier suit, maybe show 500 of them, maybe that would have an amazing impact. So it's interesting, the singularity. Fashion doesn't have to work with singularity. Paintings do, sculpture does, clothing doesn't, multiples. So, you know, so for me, um, that's where I think uh, it would be interesting to see um, museums experimenting more with things like that. What does it say when you see it as the multiplication of something? Um, but no, I'm, ple I'm pleased they've done Gaultier. I mean, any curator would tell you how differently they would do it because that's what curators do. You know, my version would have had, you know. Um, but I, I think it's incredible that it's here. And there are a lot of people here, there are a lot of shops who stocked Gaultier in the early days. So there are a lot of retailers in Melbourne who were brave, who got their Gaultier in and sold it to people in Melbourne. So I think that's also nice to see that because they're Gaultiers that, you know, we're familiar with because we actually had them stocked in Melbourne. So I think there's, there's a lot of good things. The part I find most disappointing is the Australian bit because I think, so what? I mean, it would have been more interesting to have thrown in Lee Bowery because, you know, Bowery and Gaultier used to hang out... Um, 
you know, a taboo. So that would have been more interesting. But Gaultier probably didn't want that because, remember, this is haute couture Gaultier now. So, again, in terms of where he sits in his business, like going back to the Versace, it is a brand. And that's the part with fashion, you know, and you understand why they can't leave that alone. That's, that's their bread and butter. So even though you'd like to think they could just let the museum do whatever, you know that it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as that. So, so anyway... Oh, no, I did. That was my big thing. No, no. So what I did, and again, um, to, to address a lot of the criticisms of fashion are to do with the mannequin. Um, and, you know, the lifeless mannequin, it destroys it, da-da-da-da. So what I did, all the exhibitions I did for my PhD were without a mannequin. So what I wanted was the true body to be... So the absence of the body became the presence of the body. And that gave it the sense of the form. So I talk a, a lot about in my PhD about the empty dress. And again, it was going to looking at the voids. So you became more conscious of the body by not having the body there. Um, and that's where, in fact, um, by even lying something on the ground, I did a very creepy exhibition at the War Museum, which was another place I said I'd never work either, but I went there. Uh, and they had one dress. <laughs> so I had to work with one dress. It was one blue dress. Um, but it was interesting because it actually was a white dress that had been dyed blue, so I found that out. Um, but what I did is I set it up through the museum 12 different ways. And I had it in one room just lying on the ground. And all these people came up to the attendant and said, oh, you've got to pick the dress up. Someone's left it lying on the ground. And they went, no, no, it's meant to be like that. Because then you got the gestures of the garment. So what I used was the garment to show the gestures. And that gave you a sense of someone had just slipped out of it and gone away. Well, no, no, no. You became very conscious of the different types of bodies because, again, uh, from, from uh, the tracing on the actual garments themselves, I took a lot of photographs that I used as well in terms of getting a sense of, like often we knew who a person was, but most of the time we didn't. So this idea of the garment when it's vacated... Um, and I referenced, again, I won't get into all the philosophical or things like that, but I referenced a lot of different um, thoughts around emptiness and the presence of something and the memory. Uh, but often in terms of there were lots of different memories because you also had the hand that made the garment. So you had that, so you'd find... And often, you know, people would talk about finding the odd bit of blood on a, on a, on a, a piece of cotton thread as the sewer was sewing the garment or the... So you get the traces from the maker, you get the traces from the wearer, you then get it reworn. So then you go through the stages of how many times something has been worn. So in, in a museum, they want integrity. So often what they want to do is trace it back to its original wearer, when in fact, when in fact, part of what the National Trust project was, was no. It's interesting and also in terms of... Um, the value of textiles and garments, I mean, historically, because, you know, if you make a cloth that was very valuable, you would continually remake a garment. The idea that it was just in a moment of time never happened. So the 18th century garment could become part of the early 19th century garment. 
um, and they would be continually reworked. Lace is the one that most people are familiar with, passing down lace for wedding dresses or whatever. But it happened in a lot of, a lot of different materials. So I think that's where in terms of what are, what, are, what are the histories that we represent? So for me, part of it was a history of wear and the remaking through the wear. Um, and that's where you start to see some very interesting patterns. Um, but once you put a garment on a mannequin that's fibreglass, and even if you pat it exactly, you actually lose the gestural qualities from that original body. So once you take that away and you read the garment, you can see the qualities of how it would have moved, all sorts of things. And that, again, is that curiosity in looking at the fabric and reading the signs, which if they all look the same in the same generic mannequin, you don't get. So I became anti-mannequins as well. I got rid of the mannequin um, and went for a gestural way, which was to, to, to draw people's attention to the absence, which actually put credence on the body. So that makes sense. So... Okay, we've done very well. <laughs> there we go. Do we want to finish? <laughs> Thank you.